0: the financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to TC's podcast on the go. I'm Ching Hui Eng, Program Director from Toronto Centre. Today, I'm in Singapore, and I have the pleasure of spending some time with Dr. Ho Yi Kaur, Chief Economist of the ASEAN Plus 3 Macroeconomic Research Office, or AMRO. We will be talking about the impact of the COVID 19 pandemic on Asia's economic outlook and financial stability. And AMRO has just published its assessment of the situation in its annual flagship report, the ASEAN Plus 3 Regional Economic Outlook, or ARIO 2020. So, Dr. Kaur, welcome. And congratulations on the publication of AMRO's flagship report this year.
1: Thank you, uh, Chung Hui. Thank you for inviting us to join this podcast.
0: Thank you. And just a short introduction about AMRO. AMRO is an international organization established to contribute towards securing macroeconomic and financial stability of the ASEAN plus three region. And ASEAN here refers to the 10 member countries of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, and the plus three refers to China and Hong Kong, Japan, Korea. AMRO's mandate is to conduct macroeconomic surveillance, support the implementation of the regional financial arrangement, which is the Chiang Mai Initiative Multilateralization, or CMIM, and to provide technical assistance to its members. And in the area of technical assistance, Toronto Centre is very pleased to partner AMRO in programs for financial supervisors in Southeast Asia. Our guest today, Dr. Kaur, has had a distinguished career in the International Monetary Fund and in the Monetary Authority of Singapore prior to joining AMRO as Chief Economist. So welcome again, Dr. Khor. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today.
1: Thank you, ching for that kind introduction.
0: Dr. Kor, AMRO's flagship report offers a timely assessment of the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on Asia's economic outlook and financial stability. What are the main messages in the report?
1: Well, as ching mentioned, uh, we publish this uh, flagship report once a year. It's the, called the REO 2020. It's in its fourth edition. And this year's edition has been the most challenging to prepare because we started the preparation back in September. And at that time, our main concern was the US-China trade conflict and how it will impact the growth prospect for the region. And we sort of completed the draft by January. And then there was the the US-China trade uh, phase one deal. And so, you know, we sort of ending on a brighter note. But the whole and behold, the COVID-19 outbreak happened in Wuhan. And all of a sudden, the whole short-term outlook changed. And we had to uh, scramble to try to revise our forecast. So sometime in the third week of January, we actually uh, put our revised forecast. Uh, We were trying to, to be updated in terms of events that was happening and we thought that you know uh, so instead of a, a relatively uh, positive recovery in 2019 we had to shave down our our forecast as uh, to we mentioned uh, we had actually expected this uh, pandemic or uh, this outbreak to be similar to the SARS you know and from the experience of the SARS uh, it was relatively short it was contained within uh, six uh, about 6 months you know 4 to 6 months and then there was a very sharp rebound, so we took that as you know what is likely to happen in the region, and the outbreak was would be limited to the region in Asia. But uh, we didn't expect the outbreak to spread so very rapidly to you know Europe and then on to the US. Uh, so it was a totally different type of uh, uh, infection than we had expected, and because of that, uh, we had to keep changing our updating. And we finally had to cut it off on March 16. Um, and because the virus was just moving too fast for us, uh, as uh, Dr. Fauci, uh, you know, the famous health expert to the White House said, uh, the virus set the timeline, not us. So we had to keep you know, moving with the virus. And so we finally had a cut-off date on March, March 16. And that's, the, that's what you see in the REO report uh, when you look at it uh, in terms of the forecast and the outlook. Uh, but when we launched the report uh, just uh, last week, uh, we updated all our forecasts with the latest data available. And you can see that two weeks make a huge difference in terms of the uh, outlook and the projection. Um, so that's where we are today. And I'm sure that, you know, and we and that outlook actually assumes a relatively mild global recession. And I think, you know, many analysts, including the IMF, are now saying that this could be even worse than the... Uh, uh, the global financial crisis in 2009 so it's very likely that we have to re- review the outlook and and uh, revise it again uh, very soon
0: thank you dr Call, for walking us through the assessment certainly the virus has uh, set the timeline for all of us and it must be very challenging as you said to uh, keep uh, forming and reforming uh, the assessment of the outlook and implications for financial stability. Now, it seems from what you said that you're expecting a kind of V-shaped recovery um, predicated on the mild recession in the rest of the world. So you're expecting a quick rebound for Asia, led by manufacturing, and that was informed by, in part by what you said, uh, experience of a quick rebound for Asia during the outbreak of SARS, which is the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome in 2003. Um, but this time with COVID-19, could you talk more about what are the risks to this uh, quick rebound that you're foreseeing? What are the risks to a quick recovery in Asia?
1: There was the assumption, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, when, we, when we were revising the forecast uh, you know, and we heard about the outbreak in China, that it would be very similar to the experience of SARS, and you know, but you know, this uh, SARS turned out to be much more infectious and has spread across the world, and so we are now seeing Europe and now and then the US uh, struggling to contain the, the the virus. So although China has come out of this this virus and could possibly have a quick rebound, uh, they are now going to be faced with an external headwind coming from very weak demand in Europe and the US, because they would just be emerging out of the uh, COVID pandemic. The duration of the pandemic very much depends on the policy response and how determined authorities are or governments are in terms of uh, containing it and making sure that it doesn't have uh, um, get prolonged. Uh, so that's one of the uncertainty that we have. And because of that, I think the 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 rebound in in Asia is going to be much uh, slower. And what we are also seeing now is a second round of uh, infection in ASEAN, which is just t- uh, happening about two weeks ago. And so it's going to take several more weeks before the ASEAN countries are able to contain this uh, virus. Uh, and that's another reason why, you know, the quick rebound may not be as quick. Uh, we are now looking at the likelihood of a more U-shaped rebound, uh, China obviously will be ahead of of everyone. But even China is now very concerned about important inflation and making sure that there is no second round of infection. And they're going to be much more cautious about opening up, you know, given that there's so much uh, infection around the world. So if you look at our projection, uh, instead of uh, initially we were thinking that this year we might be able to achieve 4.2% growth, okay? Uh, we revised it down from 4.9% in the flagship report. But because of the spread of the pandemic to Europe and and US and the likelihood of global recession, we have now revised down the growth for the region to 2%. And although it will still be a V-shaped rebound for China, it will be a a weaker rebound, right? So for the region as a whole, we are looking at a 2% growth and that assumes again also a a rebound for ASEAN countries, but that's going to take place in the third quarter rather than in the second quarter. So again, as I said, uh, we are looking at the data. Uh, We are very much data driven and it's likely that we might have to uh, revise it further down. So instead of a V-shape, I think maybe better to characterize it as a U-shape recovery.
0: Thank you, Dr. Koh. And uh, you talked about policymakers' responses, and we will certainly discuss that uh, later. Um, but just taking a step back and taking a long view now, um, looking at the COVID uh, pandemic, how is this crisis different from other crises that have hit the Asian region in the past? Uh, the Asian financial crisis about 20 years ago, and also... Um, the global financial crisis about ten years ago, although you know that uh, did not originate in Asia as the Asian financial crisis, but nevertheless, uh, Asia was uh, also felt the fallout from the global financial crisis. So, how, how is this uh, COVID nineteen pandemic, the health crisis engendered here? How is it different from these other crises?
1: Very different in a way. Uh, they are both, you know, unexpected shocks. Uh... But the Asian financial crisis and the global financial crisis are financial crises. Whereas the the COVID pandemic is really a health crisis, right? It originated from a virus that is very infectious and spread across the world. Obviously, uh, dealing with the trying to contain the crisis would have, uh, you know, implication for the economy and, and the financial system, right? But those are fallout from having to contain the crisis. Uh, it didn't originate in the financial sector. So in the in the Asian financial crisis, you know, as in the uh, uh, global financial crisis, the the underlying cause was excessive leverage, right? And in the case of the Asian financial crisis, it was it started in the ASEAN emerging market economy, and then spread around the world. So it was an emerging markets uh, financial crisis. The global financial crisis, uh, the epidemic, the epicenter was in the US and then it spread around the world because of uh, risk aversions and a demand for liquidity. And so, you know, everybody got hit because of the fallout uh, uh, with a major recession in the US and in Europe. You know? So this pandemic, uh, it started with the health, uh, but in the process of containing the, the, the virus, we need to implement policies. That implies uh, uh, locking down the economy, you know, uh, making the economy come to a standstill. And that has implication for the real economy, businesses, workers, you know, who who lost their jobs. And that has implication for the financial sector. So it's a knock-on effect uh, from the health sector to the real economy and to the financial sector.
0: Thank you. And I just want to follow up on what you said, that this is basically a crisis that originated in public health, not in the financial sector. But nevertheless, it can have severe consequences for financial institutions and markets. And we have already seen disruptions in asset markets. We have seen market liquidity being strained despite the support from central banks and credit risks have heightened So for the financial supervisors who are listening to this, what are the key financial stability risks that we should all be concerned about over the next 12 months?
1: Well, the most obvious one is uh, sharp rise in NPLs simply because businesses and workers who lost a job will not be able to service the debt, right? And this is why uh, I think it's important that regulatory forbearance uh, as one of the measures to deal with the uh, impact on the economy. Uh, but, you know, we have seen this before, uh, in the previous crisis where, you know, there's a need for regulatory forbearance, uh, to some extent. Uh, and so it means that the balance sheet of the financial system of the, of the banks, uh, and also the financial institution are going to be impaired, right? And I think it's important, uh, going forward to try to fix that as quickly as possible. Uh, in terms of the need for recap, recap, or to you know set up an asset management company to take the impaired uh, asset off the balance sheet of the banks, so they can they can start lending again. I think that's one of the risks uh, that we, we see that if the if the financial system is impaired and and unable to you know return back to normal operation in terms of lending to the business sector, then the whole economy is going to be dragged down. Uh, as you also mentioned, uh you know, in some of the countries in the region uh the financial market is also stressed. Uh so we've seen of course the uh, asset prices all tumbling down. Uh but there are also liquidity issues, uh, which is why I think the, the Fed has come up this massive uh, liquidity program to try to bail out uh, uh illiquid uh, assets. Um so this is something quite different. Uh and we have and in, in, in the region I think we also saw that in some of the more more developed uh, financial markets, uh, Korea for one, and and, and also in uh, Malaysia and Thailand, you know, they are also uh, you know prepared to uh, intervene in the markets in order to make sure that assets uh, are. So you have a very rapid downgrading of of, uh, of the uh, securities because this is an uh, unexpected shock. I think the central bank feel responsibility to, to at least make sure that the market continues to function by providing sufficient liquidity to the market so those are some of the the issues that is going to come out after the, the crisis you know and that you need to try to repair the balance sheets of the of the banks and rehabilitate them so that they can start lending again
0: dr. Kohl, how do you assess the kind of state of the financial system or um financial sector resilience in Asia coming into this pandemic. Uh, And also you've mentioned some examples of what policymakers in Asia has done. Uh, What has worked, what has not, and what more should be done? So um, what is the situation of the financial sector in Asia coming into the crisis? And then what should policymakers be doing next?
1: In hindsight, you can say that the Asian financial crisis <laughs> was preparation for this, uh, because after the the Asian financial crisis, one of the big lessons that uh, you know regulators in the region took away was the need to have strong balance sheet and strong regulatory framework, and that continued after the global financial crisis uh, with Basel one, Basel two, Basel three. So I think that the banks are in relatively strong position to absorb the shocks. Uh, but nevertheless, it depends on how this uh, thing evolves. Uh, and so there's some uncertainty about how long it will take to overcome this uh, virus, uh, contain it. And the longer it takes, uh, the worse it's going to get in terms of you know, the damage to the bank's balance sheet. I think it's fair to say that uh, most regulators are you know, much more ready now to deal with that kind of issues than before. Uh, having the experience, the benefit of the experience from the Asian financial crisis and also from the global financial crisis, where they had to deal with uh, liquidity issues and the impairment of the balance sheet of the financial system.
0: Thank you. What more should policymakers be doing now? What have they done so far? What has worked? What has not?
1: I think policymakers have been quite proactive uh, in terms of anticipating the issue. You know, obviously, this is an evolving uh, situation, and the kind of measure that you need would depend on you know what you expect. At the moment, I think they have done about as much as they need to. Uh, but I know from from reading the press, the newspaper, <laughs> and that uh, for instance, the Bank of Thailand is now even looking at you know beyond this to see how they might need to have a quantitative easing program. And this would be, you know, quite a big move on the part of the central bank, you know. But at, at this point, I think, you know, uh, it's still early days. Uh, we, we have not seen what uh, how, how bad the damage is yet to the real economy and the implication for the balance sheet. Obviously, some of this will also depend on, you know, how big the stimulus package is or the package that the governments are taking to deal with the problem, how much, uh, for instance, if they introduce a moratorium, how long the moratorium is going to be, you know, and I think it varies from country to country. Some countries are more highly leveraged than others, and they may have to do more in in, in those countries to try to fix the payment to the asset than countries which are less leveraged. So I think we'll we'll get a better sense of what else needs to be done, uh, you know, uh, maybe in a few more months.
0: Thank you. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk at the level of uh, individual institutions, uh, public institutions, private companies in Asia, about their business continuity planning or BCP. And uh, how prepared were uh, were, were these institutions and private companies for a disruption of this scale? And what are the lessons that are emerging from how they have activated their BCPs? Uh,
1: I don't think any country is prepared for this scale of a pandemic, uh, even during the SARS. I think the SARS was a great uh, experience for some countries in the region, in terms of the need to prepare, you know, a BCP program. Uh, but I think this is a, a you know much bigger and you know locking down the whole country uh, is, is quite unprecedented. But I think this time around, uh, we are quite lucky that technology has, has you know, advanced tremendously, right? Uh, video conferencing is now uh, becoming quite common. Uh, I You know, everybody is locked down in their home, but the meetings continue to, to go on. <laughs> so I think many countries are going to move to, you know, this telecommuting and working from home is much easier now than it would have been if it had happened uh, even five, six years back, you know? in terms of the uh, technology that's available now. Uh, but I would say that uh, even so, uh, many, I think, companies are in, in this part of the world generally are not ready for this kind of uh, uh, lockdown and having to deal with it. Well, the other thing that has happened is uh, e-commerce, right? E-commerce has taken off in the region. Uh, and, and because of that, you know this pandemic is going to accelerate the whole process of online shopping for grocery Consumer products and it's going to stimulate the logistic sector, the delivery uh, service, and all that. Uh, so a lot of you know economic activity has moved online. Even restaurants now, you know, uh, instead of shutting down completely, are offering uh, online services. It continues long enough. I think people are going to get used to it. <laughs> um, and, but obviously, it varies from country to country. The the lesser developed countries don't have the same kind of uh, internet of uh, facility and and, and, and and infrastructure to to cope with this you know? uh, but I think that the trend is very clear that uh, there's going to be a lot more of uh online activities and businesses uh you know, than before but of course there are certain services that will be very badly hit like the airlines you know? and that you cannot do all right some of which of course the business can conduct online but tourism is by nature, you know, uh, an experience that you have to like, require you to be there. Uh, much harder to do it virtually. So, yes, I, I I think businesses are generally not ready, although I think we are quite fortunate that technology is much more you know, advanced and able to help us to bridge the gap uh, a lot better.
0: Yes, certainly. I think the pandemic has really, as you said, set the timeline and perhaps accelerated some of the trends, uh, in use of technology or in e-commerce or, or other coping mechanisms, uh, sort of given it a boost. And when we come out on the other side of this pandemic, perhaps this will be the point that changes uh, how we work, how we interact with each other, uh, how pol- public policy is communicated to the public and all those other things. But we- I think, but while we are still in the pandemic, we have really seen extreme levels of uncertainty and complexity. Uh, as you said, uncertainty on how long this disruption will last, complexity in terms of uh, feedback loops across all sectors in the economy. As a policymaker, yourself uh, with your extensive experience as a senior policymaker, how should policymakers best deal with this level of uncertainty and complexity when they are seeking to manage the crisis? How should they be focusing their minds? What mindset should they be in when they are faced with this level of uh, uncertainty and complexity?
1: Yeah, so I think policymakers have to be uh, try to be proactive, but uh, there's so much you can do when there's uh, a lot of uncertainty about how the situation is going to evolve. But there are some uncertainties that can be uh, minimize, you know. Uh, I think we all know from the experience of China and Korea that the pandemic can be contained, you know, if you take the tough measures and you persevere, you know, until the the virus is contained, rather than you know uh, relaxing too soon and allowing a second wave of infection to happen, right? Uh, so the uncertainty in terms of containing the, the epidemic, I think can be done much more uh, proactive and also determined fashion so that we don't lengthen the, the pandemic uh, unnecessarily. And also this requires cooperation across uh, many countries, uh, sharing information, uh, helping each other by providing the necessary medical equipment like PPE and also face masks and all that. So. The uncertainty with regard to duration, I think, can be narrowed if the governments uh, cooperate and you know and take the necessary tough measure and persevere and be patient uh, about it. And at the same time, work together to try to get the vaccine done. And then there is this uh, other issue with complexity that you mentioned, the feedback loop. Uh, the feedback loop onto the uh, rail sector. Uh, I think to some extent, you know, uh, we discussed that because. We know that the impact on you know, containing the, the virus will have, uh, requires us to take measures to lock down the economy, bring it to its standstill, and that has damaging effect on, on, on the rest of the economy. Cash flow problem uh, that needs to be dealt with through you know, various measures, regulatory forbearance, of liquidity, uh, maybe a stimulus package. Uh, some of that will come naturally uh, you know, as, as, as the things evolve. But certainly, you know there is this uh, feedback loop that, that you mentioned, which complicates the the effort to deal with the contain the, the pandemic. Uh, I mean, in the case of Singapore, for instance, you know uh, now they are facing a second round of infection. They sort of uh, thought they had uh, managed to contain the the virus, and then with the imported inf- uh, infection, and the, and the virus is very sneaky because. Uh, when you don't see any signs, any new cases, it's spreading very silently, you know, because of the asymptomatic uh, cases uh, or very mild symptoms. And people, you know, are not aware they're they are infected and they're spreading the, 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 the virus around. So, I mean, and then that in, in turn caused the government to tighten measures, which has implica- affects the economy even, even more. So, but you know, it's it's a game in in a way uh, between the the po- the policy and the virus, <laughs> and you know how you play the game. I think the, the the way to play the game is that you know you we know what needs to be done and we do it and in a determined fashion, and not let you know let go until we finally uh, manage to contain the, the virus. And in terms of lifting the, the the measures, you know, it requires a lot of work in terms of. Um, mass testing, uh, tracing, confinement, you know, uh, and until a vaccine is developed, I think we we may have to do a lot of that, uh, in, you know, in order to uh, uh, allow the the economy to function and at the same time contain the, the virus.
0: Well, thank you. I think that's a, a clear message to policymakers and our financial supervisors, which is, you know, take the tough actions, have the courage and the conviction to take those tough policy measures uh, at the beginning, uh, so and let the uh, positive effects of that work through, uh, despite the complexity and the evolving situation. And also, I think another valuable message I got out of this was uh, the importance of coordination uh, among policymakers and across countries, you know, in their measures, and also communication of what's happening, even though, uh, even as these uh, tough measures are being taken uh, for public support of these measures. So a- any closing thoughts for our listeners here, Dr. Kaur?
1: Um just want to say that uh, the longer term prospect for the, for the region, you know, I think uh, you know, that, that, that's the topic for our second chapter, because we were looking at the challenges facing the region and what the longer term prospect might be, and what are some of the global, uh, you know, drivers or trends? At that time, we were concerned about you know protectionism, but as it turns out, I think you know the the impact of this uh, pandemic is quite similar in some way, because uh, when we come out of it, uh, the global economy is going to be much weaker, and so when you look forward, you ask yourself, you know, have the fundamentals uh, still intact? You know. Uh, and, and and I think the region is quite uh, fortunate in the sense that uh, it has uh, come a long way in terms of development uh, it, in some areas it's already at the frontier of technology and it has also a very large rising middle class which can help to support uh, re- domestic and regional demand so you know while growth going forward may be weaker than before I think it's going to be relatively uh, robust uh, so you know, I, I think my my view is that we need to take, be resolute in terms of containing the virus. But when we come out of it, you know, at least uh, the prospect is still there that uh, the region can leverage on its strong fundamentals to uh, grow at a relatively healthy rate. Yeah.
0: Thank you very much, Doctor Cor. The messages of uh, COVID nineteen pandemic has been a shock to Asia and the world, but Asia has the buffers. It has the fundamentals to write this through with uh, action from the policymakers and support from the public in Asia. Thank you very much again. Thank you. Thank you. I'm here today in Singapore with Dr. Ho-Ee Kor, Chief Economist of the ASEAN Plus 3 Macroeconomic Research Office. And you've been listening to a Toronto Centre podcast on the go. Thank you for joining us.